Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Today's episode of the Sidious Mag Podcast on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network is presented by Saucony and the limited edition Endorphin Pro Plus. Saucony made waves when they launched the carbon-plated Endorphin Pro racing shoe last summer, and one of the secrets to their success was how closely they worked with their pro athletes to design and develop it. 209 marathoner Jared Ward was deeply involved in the early product trials and testing, and everyone from Jared to Parker Stinson and Laura Thweet set personal best wearing the final product. But the thing about pro athletes is that they're never really satisfied. You can give them the latest and greatest gear, but they're always dreaming about what's next. They're looking for whatever can get them a little faster, a little bit more efficient on race day. So when their athletes started testing the Endorphin Pro 2, they told Saucony that they loved it, but they wanted an even lighter version. Something with the same incredible pop and propulsion, but with an ultralight upper. A shoe purely meant for going all out on race day. So the Saucony team went to work, stripping away anything that wasn't essential and swapping out materials for lighter, smoother, and more breathable ones. They obsessed over every swatch and stitch, cutting weight as they went. The result is the Endorphin Pro Plus, a shoe that's tailored for speed. With Saucony's super responsive Power Run PB foam and their signature S-curve carbon fiber plate, it's no wonder that this shoe has been making waves all over the Sneaker Watch Instagram accounts. So mark your calendars for September 28th when you can snag a pair of the limited edition Endorphin Pro Plus on Saucony.com. It is super limited. You'll also get to see the shoes in action at a special test event taking place in Germany on September 22nd which you'll be able to watch live on the Sidious Mag YouTube channel, and it'll feature commentary by me and Kyle Merber. We're getting your favorite announcing duo back together. And until then, check out Saucony's current lineup, including the Endorphin Pro 2 and the Endorphin Speed 2, another plate fan favorite for speed and tempo runs. Thanks to the support on Patreon, a special welcome to Felicia Zerzolo and Christine Knox, who have jumped on to back the show within the past week. Your dollars help us pay our new podcast producer, Mike. The funds also go toward planning for major events coming up, like our fall marathon coverage. And then the big year will obviously be 2022 with USA's and then the World Championships in Eugene, Oregon. So if you enjoy what we're doing, support us over at patreon.com slash SidiousMag. You can also make a one-time donation by sending any dollar amount that you feel comfortable with to at SidiousMag on Venmo. Another way you can show your love is by picking up a t-shirt or sweater we've got fall coming up over at sidiousmag.com and hitting the merch tab we've surpassed 1000 reviews on apple podcasts but that's never enough more reviews help us populate onto people's feeds as a recommended show on apple podcasts and allows possible sponsors to see what listeners think of the show it takes less than a minute to leave a review and rating so i greatly appreciate it if you can do so so thanks again to everyone who has done that already my guest for this episode is Olympic and World Championship steeplechase silver medalist Courtney Frerichs. This was recorded in August, just after she became the first American woman to run under nine minutes in the steeplechase. The last time she was on the show, it was in 2018, after she broke the American record in 90085 at the Monaco Diamond League. 
In 2019, she had what she believes to be a disappointing season that ended with a sixth-place finish at the World Championships just two years after taking silver behind Emma Coburn. When the pandemic wiped away the 2020 outdoor season, she didn't do a single steeplechase workout at all. She took a break from training for the event and then had an injury that came up in December. You'll learn a lot more about that and how the two steeplechase races before the Olympic trials set the blueprint for one of the best performances by an American at the Tokyo Games. In Japan, she boldly took the lead after about a kilometer into the race and tried holding on, but was passed in the final lap by Uganda's Perth Chimutai. And Frerichs ended up with the silver, which is the best performance by an American steeplechase at the game since the event was added in 2008. So you'll be put in her shoes for that race and hear more about things like Shalane Flanagan's text message to her before the race and much more. At the pre-classic just a few weeks later, she lowered her American record to 857.77. And then at the Diamond League final, she took third overall. Now she believes that she belongs and is here to stay in the steeplechase. So without further ado, here is... Courtney Frerichs. All right, now we welcome back Courtney Frerichs to the City of Smag podcast. And I think the last time I had you on was 2018, right after you broke the American record in Monaco. So I figured we'd have to do it do it all <laughs> over again because you just did that again at the pre-classic. But I was under the assumption that maybe you've shut the season down. Maybe that's like the high note to go out on. But no, I'm wrong. Like you're back in Portland and are getting ready for the Diamond League final in Zurich. Yes. Yep. Preparing for that. Um, I leave Friday to go over to Europe. So pretty excited. Yeah. I think we, we, we should just make it a tradition that you'll come on this podcast anytime you break the American <laughs> record. And so it's a good thing if I, if I like reach out and be like, oh, all right, let's do this all over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, hopefully maybe, you know, a yearly thing. Or <laughs> yeah, so I guess if we're catching up since 2018, you've kind of still just been at a very consistent high level. Um, it's the U.S. steeplechase scene hasn't really changed too much at the top. Um, with you and Emma kind of leading the charge. I guess this year the big question mark was Colleen for a bit. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll start there. Is I guess Colleen left the group at the end of last year, January of this year, sort of. And for you, I guess, like, what? how did that sort of impact you? And, like, that? she was, like, probably one of your closest training partners because you guys are at the same event and have been making teams together for the past five years. So all of a sudden she's gone and like, how did things change for you? Yeah. You know, it certainly was a little bit of a surprise. Um, and her being a part of the group was a big deciding factor. Whenever I was looking at groups, I wanted to have a steeplechase training partner. And so it was definitely, you know, hard to know that I was going to be losing that with the team. But, you know, I also, knew she was making a decision that was best for herself and what she was wanting looking forward. And so I kind of, you know, took a step back and, you know, realized like just because maybe I'm losing a training partner specific to the steeple, it didn't mean I was, you know, losing the ability to train with people. And, you know, if I, if I look at where most of my improvement has come from since I ran nine flat in 2018, it's actually in the flat running. And so, um, you know, last year in 2020, we put a really big emphasis on the flat running 
And so I felt really confident that the Bowerman Chat Club, the team I'm a part of was still the right place because I was going to be continuing to be pushed in areas that are actually probably my weaker areas. And I also think that having to train on my own now again in the steeple helped me to feel confident in, you know, going to the front, pushing from the front since I was doing that in practice all year. Was that something that before when Colleen was part of the group that you guys would kind of like alternate, you know, during reps and that kind of stuff. And then now since there's nobody and it's just you, it kind of makes envisioning the actual race a little bit easier. Cause it just then at some point feels like practice. Yeah, definitely. We would, you know, either alternate reps. Sometimes we would take over and like change lead in the middle of reps if it was a longer rep. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of good to that because you're getting practice on both sides of it. Cause there is, you know, a skill in hurdling and, and running the steeplechase behind people. And so that definitely took a little more getting used to. And I had to really, you know, work on that part of things like just in the races. And so you look at some of the early races I did and it was like, I just kind of sat in the pack early, even if the pace was pretty slow, I think for what I was, you know, kind of hoping to run or what I was used to, there was, you know, things to work on, um, you know, hurdling in a pack and, um, you know, trusting they're going to go over the barrier at the right time and such. So, um, but I do think that, you know, working on pushing myself in those workouts from the front made it almost like a comfortable place whenever it came time to take the lead in some of these big races this year. I love that you brought up the flat races, especially last year when you guys had like the inner squad sort of uh, meets that went down, because I think that was the one thing that always stood out looking at your PRs is that flat races, it's like the, the foot speed isn't totally there. Like I think 1500, you've got down to 407, but sometimes people would be like, really? That, like, that's it? And it's so <laughs> funny because like, I guess, why, why do you think that's the case that we haven't really quite solved why? without barriers you can't seem to find that like the last time you told the story about breaking 60 for the first time in the 400 now are we finally at the point where maybe we could start thinking about breaking two in the 800 or like (laughs) are we still kind of missing that little element of why is Courtney's just sort of straight up speed not quite there unless there's barriers and hurdles on the track (laughs) um I mean the speed side of things is definitely just my weaker area as an athlete. Um, you know, I'm never going to be a sub two 800 meter runner. That's just, <laughs> Come on, you know, unfortunately, that <laughs> I know, unfortunately that's just my reality. Um, you know, as a distance runner, I'm definitely more geared towards 5k, 10k. Um, and so, but we've worked really hard on those skills because obviously you can't just say, Oh, I'm not good at it. I'm not going to do it. Um, but I do think that, you know, part of it, the reason that my times didn't quite match up across, I think all of them for so long was just, I was never running those events when I was in kind of my peak shape. You know, I think as a steeplechaser, you have to make the decision that you might sacrifice working on some of those areas at times. And so when we're in our best fitness in the summertime, we're using those really hard specific sessions to do steeplechase workouts and not 1500 or 5k workouts. And so, um, you do lose some of the opportunity to really see where you can get in those events, I think by dedicating to the steeplechase. And I think that was something that I really started to struggle with after 2018 for some reason. Oh, well, I think I was letting like 
the thoughts of others around my lack of flat times really like changed the way I viewed myself, which is not like really a healthy thing. And I started to just feel like there was almost this like shame that I couldn't do it all. And like, I like viewed myself as not good enough because I was only focusing on the steeple instead of being like, Hey, I found my event. I'm all in on this event and I'm good at it and I love it. And so it was good last year that I was able to kind of, you know, dip my toe in the flat stuff and see, you know, see what I could do, um, given a little more focus on it. And, um, you know, I think it helped me carry a little bit more confidence, but yeah, unfortunately I'm never going to be the, the, the fastest. Um, (laughs) but I do think I have, um, you know, probably, you know, really amazing strength. Mm-hmm. in terms of my 5k 10k ability that comes into play in the steeple and you know those knowing those things about myself and, and jerry knowing those things and um led to some of the decisions we made in terms of how the races played out this year what's the breaking point in practice because we see the photos that you guys share from you know like uh doing reps and that kind of stuff but is it on mile repeats you're able to really close the gap and hold on as as long as possible and like stay up with the front group and then like it's on the 400s or 200s at the end where everyone starts to get you know a second or two ahead yeah definitely like anything under 400 meters it's like I'm maybe not even gonna throw myself in with you know like (laughs) like Gabriella and Sinclair just have like a whole different level of speed um, I mean, gosh, even Elise is like her turnover is insane. Um, but I'm learning to not be as intimidated to try to throw myself in. Um, cause I have surprised myself a little bit and, you know, I think ran a 27 this year, 28, like I was pretty happy with that, Nice, <laughs> but 200. <laughs> so I think every once in a while putting myself in is good, but you know, yeah, definitely still room to grow in terms of even just the confidence and the speed area. Cause I've got some really fast teammates. <laughs> that's what made, I think, just sort of like mixing the group up. And when you guys did that, that mixed relay, that's what made it just so entertaining. It was because the teams are fairly even in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got, CD was such a good sport about it. And I was able to kind of almost like pace off of him. I think I ran a, I ran a 50, they ran a 57. Or 58 split. I don't know. I PR'd, which was really exciting. So that was really fun. And, you know, kind of felt like high school over again. So what have you gotten that 400 time down to? I mean, just like flat out in practice, it stayed at 59. But I'm pretty sure I ran. I think I split a 57 in one of the four by fours. So I, mean, yeah. I was pretty proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> um Okay, so let's get into sort of this this past year and sort of training. You did mention that like it was a little bit more of a conservative start to the season. With um, it, it took until May, I think, for you to steeple for the first time since Worlds two thousand nineteen. I guess like at that point, did it feel? I, I guess the grant when you look at results, it's easy to think that oh my god, they haven't done it in so long. But in practice, you're probably going over hurdles a bunch. It's just sort of there hasn't been a result to show for it for the past like 15 or 16 months. So that first race, I guess, like, was it purely again, I guess, sort of like you mentioned before practicing being in a pack and and all that kind of stuff. And then trying to kick because in the end, like I think the way the Olympics panned out, you want, you decided instead to string things out. But so was there something that you picked up on in those early races that factored into the eventual decision to run the Olympics the way you did? 
Um, yes. Um, looking at the first one, honestly, that one was kind of just ripping the bandaid off and getting back out there. Um, I actually really, in 2020, I did some just straight hurdling, but I actually did not do a single steeple workout. Um, really just took basically an entire year off of the event. And I think it was good, just the event's really hard on your body. And it gave me a chance to really tackle some of those like hard 5k specific workouts and see what I could do in the 5k. Um, and then come 2021, I had only done one and then half of a steeple workout going into Mount Sac and actually very little hurdling. Um, I had a hamstring injury in um, the winter that I was able to run through, but not able to like fully work out through. And so we had to really modify things during our Flagstaff camp. And I think I, coming off of that, was struggling with a lack of trust that I was ready to steeple. And just coming off of, you know, Worlds in 2019 was a little bit disappointing. And I was really, all of 2019 didn't come close to, you know, what I had done the previous year. So I think the combination of, you know, am I ever going to get back to nine flat shape plus, you know, is my body ready for this? meant there was just a lot of nerves going into Mount Sack. And I actually was like, Jerry, I don't think I'm ready for this. I think, I think we need to pull the plug on it. And he's like, no, you need to get back out there. He's like, it doesn't matter what you run. You just need to get back out there. And so, you know, the whole thought process behind that one was like, let's just steeple again. And I think, you know, whenever I looked back and kind of watched some of the race, you could tell I was a little stuttery. I was a little nervous and, but it was, by the time I finally, you know, went to the front and pushed the pace in the last 800 meters or so, I started to feel like myself again. And I walked away from that being like, okay, I can see both. Like I can do this event and I love this event. And so as, you know, as kind of nervous as I was and, you know, the result itself really wasn't anything stellar compared to, I think what I'm kind of used to trying to open the season with it was what I needed to just kind of you know kick start things and so then going to Portland Track Festival I was starting to come around and and run the workouts just a little more confidently and really I think one of the big changes this year too is I really started to let go of forcing any sort of pace I think for so long like after I ran the nine flat I felt like everything had to be 72 or faster. And if it wasn't that fast, like I wasn't working out hard enough or it wasn't good enough. And, you know, there's some level of almost acceptance you have to have with where you're at. And it's going to be a process to get to your peak form. You're not going to be there starting in April, like I thought I was going to be. <laughs> and so I, going into that race, Jerry really wanted me to feel confident in taking over at some point and being okay with it being early too. He was like, you know, this is a good opportunity. We're at sea level. Um, and he slowly started to realize how much more confident and just much even better. I looked over the barriers when I actually go to the front and I have full view there, you know, there is an advantage in that, um, in the steeple and being able to see the barrier and, um, I think that seeing that was really what led him to the decision behind the Olympic trials and then the Olympics. Um, and so 
yeah, at the time I didn't realize that those race plans were really what was like gearing me up to be ready for the Olympics. But um, I'm glad that we ended up going with the kind of the schedule we we did because I think it ended up allowing me to work on the skills I needed to work on to be ready for the Olympic Games. Because originally I thought I needed to go to the Doha Diamond League and I needed to put myself in, you know, an international field to be ready. And he was just really apprehensive to travel internationally um, given the pandemic and that close to the Olympic trials. Just, you know, I've done the, tra the travel to Doha before and it can be really, really hard on you. And so, um, and I think in hindsight, I probably just wasn't ready for that, for the Diamond League as well. Mm-hmm it's so funny to now hear just sort of like oh somehow jerry has this magic ball that can you know <laughs> see into the future a little bit and you know if things follow a plan it could like end up working out in the grand scheme of things when that conversation does end up happening beforehand with him to come up with the race plan i guess what was his what were his final instructions like how how much back and forth is there in that conversation with you and him because you're the one who's going to execute the plan but at the same time you might chime in and think okay maybe that's I think that might be too early to go or and then you know sort of you both kind of feel each other out but he does come up with the outline for it yeah you know I think that was something that was kind of really cool going into this um, year in this Olympics was that I felt like it was a little more collaborative versus like, I think some of the earlier ones, I don't know, I was young and just sort of like, tell me what to do. And so um, he, as soon as the prelim was over at the Olympics, he was just like, court, you looked really good. I really liked you in the front. Like, I'm really trying to figure out how to make this the right, like, how we make this the right race for you to be successful. And he was like, I really think we know you're really strong. I think it needs to be fast. And, you know, looking at how some of the other distance races played out, no one was really committing to pace super early. And he just kind of planted the seed before we kind of had the final discussion that he's like, you know, you might have to be the one to do it. You might have to make the race. And I, I just, I had never done that before, like at an international stage, you know, normally it's like, hold on as long as you can. And somewhere in the last 600, you know, try to make a big move or try to be there with 300 to go. And so um, I was definitely really nervous about it. And then on the final day or the night before, you know, our final discussion about it all, um, you know, we were discussing just having kind of a couple of plans, I think, because you know, if someone else was willing to go to the front and start pushing the pace, you know, yeah, go take it. Like, I'll just sit on you. Like, that's, that's the, sometimes the easier spot to be, you know, shut the mind off and just race. So I definitely had a plan for that. But he basically said, he's like, I trust your instincts. And I trust that you will know what's right. But don't be afraid to go to the lead as early as a 1000 meters in mm -hmm. based off how it's playing out. And so it was good to like, feel like there was a plan, but also that, you know, I could trust myself to make the decision as to when the right time was going to be. With an empty stadium, can you hear him live in the moment yelling like in actual instructions or no? Um, I didn't really hear him. If anything, I was hearing Pascal. Um, 
you know, it's crazy. I feel like I was just like, so in the zone that Mm -hmm. I wasn't really like listening to anything. I was kind of just like trying to feel out what was happening in the race a little bit. Cause you know, the first lap was not super fast. Um, and even through the one K not super fast, but people were kind of trying to shoot off the front. So it was like, is someone going to go, is it not going to happen? And so I waited about 400 meters after the first K to, to make the move. Cause I was just trying to get a read on if someone else was going to go to the front, but I could tell no one was committing. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not like a marathon where like, you've got, you know, you know, 10 or t- 20, 30 minutes or so before as, and you can listen to the competitors around you and read people's body language. So when a race is, you know, 3k and that short, how do you consciously pick up on those cues? Um, you know, I think some of it is people committing to pace. You know, if someone, you know, typically like Beatrice at her best form, she's going to go to the front and she's just going to start pushing the pace. And so I, even just from the prelim, was picking up that something seemed a little bit off with her. So I really anticipated like she's not going to go to the front. Um, and I think a lot of it usually with the competition is, them like where they place themselves in the race in terms of how they're feeling so um the whole like the fact that no one was committing to it to me said that i think people are a little bit apprehensive um you know the conditions are pretty tough in terms of the weather and so i felt confident in my ability to handle the conditions so i was like i guess you know this is my time i need to be the one to go (laughs) Was that Hawaii that prepped you for that? Um, you know, Hawaii, I think, was good prep. But I also think that usually I've done a pretty good job of just not investing too much, like, mental energy into what the conditions are. Like, you know, certainly with, like, the marathon and such, like, there is a – even probably the 10K, there is a certain preparation that really needs to happen because you're out there for a very long time. Um, but yeah, I just tried not to overthink it too much. And once I knew I'd gotten through the prelim, that one was honestly way worse conditions wise than the final. Um, I felt pretty good about my, my ability to handle it. And, um, you know, just kind of hoped that the years of running or playing soccer and, you know, the afternoons in the Mm -hmm. Midwest, like (laughs) in the summer, would like my body would know what to do in terms of, you know efficiency and the heat and humidity yeah that was i think when i spoke to carissa beforehand she was like yep it's the the midwest card is what she'll put into play exactly in Tokyo. <laughs> i know i'm like all those have to come into play at some point yeah. i do think i mean i'm sure there is some level of increased efficiency having grown up in a in an environment like that mm-hmm. um i also like <laughs> we were laughing about it but maybe there's some truth to it we our place in Park City did not have air conditioning, which is really common. But like Elise and I were sleeping on the top floor. And for like the last like month, six weeks, our room was like 85 plus degrees. Oh my God. So we were like sleeping in like upper 80s, like every night. So I'm like, maybe that helped like prepare us a little bit better to just, you know, keep yourself cool in the, in the heat. <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's the heat training that no one yeah. really hears of. <laughs> right.
A quick break now to tell you a little bit about a new sponsor behind the podcast. It's Hustle Clean. You might remember them from when they helped sponsor some of the races and even the drone during the Trials of Miles Qualifier Series. Hustle Clean is a mission-driven self-care brand for the active lifestyle. It was created by athletes for high performers that want to do more and be more without compromise. The Hustle Clean Body Wipe is an extra-large, durable, full-body wipe designed to remove sweat, dirt, and body odor in moments when a shower is optimal but not possible. Their products are safe on sensitive skin, hypoallergenic, paraben-free, and infused with aloe vera, vitamin E, and witch hazel. Personally, I've loved using their lavender-scented one. I carry them in my bag for after my runs because we've all been in these situations. You finish a long run or a workout in the summer and the fall, and you want to meet your friends for brunch or dinner afterward, and you, you just don't have the time for a shower, you don't have the ability to get to one, the Hustle Clean Body Wipe holds you over. Get rid of that sweat, get yourself smelling good, toss on a t-shirt, and you're good to go. Hustle Clean is sold nationwide in Walmart, Target, and Amazon. Sidious Mag Podcast listeners, listen up. Get a deal and save 10% off all of their products when you visit hustleclean.com and use code Sidious at checkout. That's C-I-T-I-U-S when you visit hustleclean.com. In one of your recent Instagram posts, you did talk a little bit more about like that mental side of things. And you said a big change I made this year, thanks to some strong nudges from those around me, was to really start to address the mental side of things again. After success with this early in my professional career, I got away from it after a few good results. I was connected with an incredible therapist who's helped me to grow uh, so much as an athlete and a person. Uh, so I guess like what were some of those things that you worked on within the past two, two years that um, really factored into kind of staying calm, cool, and collected during this race? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's honestly, I think, been the biggest change that I made this year was just, you know, mentally being so much more prepared, so much happier, and just felt like ready, like with myself in terms of, you know, I wasn't really focused on what anyone else was doing. I knew I was ready, but, you know, I think there were a few big things we worked on. We really, you know, I have just such a perfectionistic like nature. Like I think it was like super innate probably. And then I grew up in a sport that just sort of really cultivated that in gymnastics since like the whole premise of the sport is perfection. Um, and so we really tackled that and realizing like it wasn't just in terms of running that that trait was coming out. I mean, it's, you know, probably been my whole life. And so, you know, whenever I get into a scenario, especially in training, like where someone's pushing the pace or it's playing out differently than I think it should be, um, you know, what tools do I have or what can I do to, handle that versus going into a panic mode, which was what was starting to happen pretty frequently. And I think the injury back in the winter was what really put it over the edge in terms of full, like just panicking whenever things were kind of going astray. Um, and, you know, it was either different mantras or words I was leaning on. And then just remembering to breathe in those moments. Cause I think I have a tendency to like, tense up and the shoulders raise and I like stop breathing, which is like the last thing you want to do while you're <laughs> running. Um, and so we worked really hard on just going into workouts, reminding myself that I belonged there and that I could handle the things that were going to be thrown at me, even if it wasn't perfect. 
And so I think working on that day after day, week after week allowed me to stand on the starting line feeling like, you know, this race can play out so many different ways and I'm going to be prepared no matter what. Um, and then just really working on, you know, that resilience, like resilient mindset allowed for me to be able to embrace things being up and down a lot more. I mean, it certainly was a much more up and down year than I envisioned it being. Um, but, you know, realizing that X plus Y didn't necessarily need to happen to get the result. Like there's so many different ways. And that was a big mistake I think I made going in 2019 particular. Like I look at that one and I say, oh, that was a year I, you know, wasn't quite where I wanted to be. Um, was that I, I think I just thought I had figured everything out in those, in those first two years. But really I then get 2019 and I'm trying to like just mimic what happened. And it's like each year is just going to play out so different. And so I think I just really kind of allowed myself to like ride out the journey a little bit more this time, even if it wasn't, even if it was taking a bit of a different turn than I thought. Um, and so, and I think that even the, my last two races really reflect that, that, you know, they were completely different races, but I was able to, I think mentally handle it and, um, put together, you know, my, my best self on those days, even if it was, you know, played out very, very different. So. so on that starting line in Tokyo, does the thought even come up for a split second that this is your job, your job is to make it to this stage and that this race is the biggest one of your career thus far yes you you were at the olympics in 2016 but at the time like that was your first first time there very much like happy to be here type moment but now coming in with a world championship silver medal from 2017 a little bit of fuel under the fire after 19 and then the pandemic year washing away everything in 2020 now this is sort of like there's such a build up to this moment and now you're on that starting line does that and I wouldn't even say pressure, maybe it is pressure, but like, how do you quiet that thought from happening and just realize I've got to take care of business the next nine minutes? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, yeah. I mean, there's certainly, I think I feel pressure in those moments. Like it would be, I'd be lying if I, if I said I didn't, I mean, that's why, you know, whenever I was, sick in Hawaii, I was basically in tears every single day because there was this reality, there, there was a reality to the fact that this was the biggest race of my career so far. Um, but I think you just have to, I mean, Shalane always says it well, that pressure is a privilege. And so you kind of have to like shift it into being like, you know what, it's like an honor that I have some, I have the potential to do something here. And the, the best results always come from, you know, doing what you, you know, you're capable of, like focusing on the skills and the tools you have to be successful versus thinking it has to be, you know, this magical moment. Like it's more just like, okay, like how do I execute the race plan that I feel confident with and that I know I'm ready for. And, um, and a lot of that meant just knowing that if I, you know, committed to the race plan I had, 
I'd walk away with no regrets. And I think that was the bigger thing. It was like, I wasn't putting all the emphasis and the energy into feeling like I had to win a medal to be successful that day. Um, I more so wanted to walk away knowing I'd done everything I could to be successful. And if there were people that were better than me that day, you know, I could walk away with my head held high. And so um, that was really what I tried to focus on versus it being like, oh my gosh, if I don't win a medal, it's a failure. Cause mm-hmm. that was definitely what I did in 2019. Even whenever like I started to feel bad, like halfway through the race in 2019, I, all I could think about was like, I'm not gonna win a medal today. And as soon as you start like only focusing on the result and thinking like this has to happen to determine success, a lot of times I think it can become really overwhelming. And I think making that sort of shift really helped me to to make a take a big risk and know that, you know, I will walk away no matter what, feeling proud if I if I commit to this instead of being like I just feel like whenever I focus on you know, just a certain result having to happen. Um, I start to run scared. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you, th- but at the same time, do you also think that 2019 was also a little bit of a revenge race? I would say for a lot of the East African runners, because 2017, you and Emma pulled off like one of the biggest upsets ever at a world championship and come away with the gold and the silver. I mean, there's that photo of the two of you celebrating on the ground and everyone around you just looks so, so angry that they didn't like, they missed the podium for the first time in a, in a while that, okay. It's sort of like how a lot of people also make out the 1500 to be on the men's side that Centro's race in 2016 was so slow. We can't let people get away with that anymore. And so we're going to make it fast from, from the gun. And that's how the last, couple men's 1500s have been at world championships and so in 19 maybe they were just it was kind of more of a statement by you know the kenyan runners the ethiopian runners to get back on top and then sort of in 2021 now with the olympics you had another sort of race play into your favor where the options were open for how things were going to go and you prepared for any sort of scenario so what i'm super curious of is also the East African fear that comes into being on the same starting line. I know you just spoke about like having to focus on your own sort of race plan, but at what point in your career was it 17 and meddling there that you let go of, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter who else is in this race. Like I've got a shot at the podium because you look at PRs on paper and when people have run under nine minutes and there's a couple of them, I'm sure that could be intimidating in a way, but you haven't let that rattle you in the last couple races. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is really the first year that I've now consistently stepped up to the line ready for whatever is going to get thrown at me. And I think a lot of that is goes back to all that work I've done on the mental side. Like obviously there is a physical component to it and I am really proud of all the work I've put in and practice. And, you know, I've, you know, been putting myself in, you know, workouts with Elise and Carissa, who are two of the top 5k, 10k runners in the U S in the world. And Elise just ran 830 for the 3k. Gosh. And, you know, Carissa's proven herself over and over again. So there's certainly that confidence piece that, okay, if I'm training with these women that are running this fast, like I can handle a lot, but also working on, you know, the mental side where I, you know, I, know going into these races that I can handle 
anything that's thrown at me, I think has been a big shift because, you know, I, I look at 2017, 2018, and I'm so proud of those races, but they also definitely played into my strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, 2017, pace didn't go out super fast, but it wasn't slow. And it was sort of just that like consistent wind down. 2018 in Monaco, I sort of just picked my way up to the front the whole time and kind of had people to chase the entire time and paced it out fairly evenly. Um, And then you see 2019 and I definitely struggled with that really crazy first lap. Um, And yeah, I think mentally that definitely got to me. There was obviously, I think it taxed me much greater than we thought it would. Um, And it, it's taken a lot of work to be able to feel like I can produce results. It not being, you know, the perfectly paced 71s that, you know, I want to have 71, 72. Um, I know I'm good at that, but it's like, how do I do it in like all these different ways? And so I, I think that that's been the biggest change and what makes me just really proud of these two races, like said, is that they have played out differently. Like, you know, I had to be the one to make the race in Tokyo, but then at pre, I mean, we still went out really, really fast. Like it yeah, was 66 for the first lap or something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. yeah. And two, even 255 for the first K that's the fastest I've ever gone out. But I think, you know, learning how to, you know, stay calm amongst that, um, helped me to, you know, not process maybe how many matches I might've burned in the first lap and be like, you know what, like I belong up here. Um, I can be up here with the rest of these women and, um, you know, I'm just going to put my best foot forward today. Mm -hmm. So I think, and that's, that's kind of something I'm trying to really take away and focus on moving forward. And, and I think that's something Emma's always done a really good job of is really putting herself in it consistently every single time. And, and you see that in all of her results, like she's consistently always there and she has this incredible resume now. And that was, was and you know it has been missing from mine for sure is Mm -hmm. that consistency was emma ever intimidating for you to be on the same starting line like right next to you and then like at this point now that you i mean you've held the american record for a couple years now and your pr is a couple seconds faster but is it now just sort of less less scary to to be on in the same race as her (laughs) It's definitely less scary now. Yeah. I, I mean, I still remember the first time I lined up with her was she was in her fifth year and I was a sophomore in college. Um, we were at a regional meet and, you know, here she was coming off the, having run the Olympics the year before and coming back to the NCAA to win another national title. And here I am like trying to just make my first national meet. <laughs> and she, of course, like, qualified super easy and I like got the last automatic spot in my in my heat and broke 10 minutes for the first time ran 959 and she turned she's like oh you went sub 10 that's awesome I was like super excited I was like, oh my gosh she's so nice too like <laughs> that was just like one of those like Emma Coburn is talking to me moments so but you know I think the fact that she was the person I was looking up to for so long and really is so much of the reason that the event is where it is, I think now in the U S there was definitely a big mental shift that had to happen to, you know, 
feel confident that I could compete with her and not like just kind of put her on this pedestal. Um, and I, I just feel so excited that our careers are overlapping because I think that we're both being pushed to much greater heights. And um, at least I know I'm doing more than I ever thought I could because she's oh she's always set the bar so high. Yeah. Um, do you, even with like kind of the energy and excitement that you bring to these races and the smiles on the starting line when you wave to the crowd and that kind of stuff, do you ever get the feel that you now intimidate other people in the race because of how fast you are compared to them? It's definitely like, I don't know. It's interesting being on the other side of it now. Yeah. You know, you're just like, Oh no, like I'm the same person I was. I hope if anything, I'm just like inspiring others to think that they can get there too. Cause you know, I don't think this is it for the women's people chase. Like I think, you know, especially looking at how fast others in the U S are running this year, I think, you know, running under nine twenty, under nine ten is going to start to become more of the norm. And, and that's what we want to happen. You know, we mm-hmm. want to keep pushing it forward and, um, make it an event people are excited about doing and that, that continue to choose to do it. Cause I think that's been a big difference too. Is like, yeah, I'm choosing the steeplechase. I could do other events, but I want to do this one. You brought up the word belong before and you got that temporary tattoo. <laughs> um, I, I want to know the story behind it. Who gave it to you? And like, how many more of those do you have? Cause like, <laughs> if, if you just stacked up on them, then like you'll have that luck with you any race going forward. I know. Yeah. So I actually had to order a like 10 pack of them. I, I ordered, I ordered them. So, but the word actually came from, from my therapist. Um, there's a lot of different, like a, a lot of my, you know, best seasons, there's like a word I kind of come back to. And, and usually um, the word will kind of surface or just kind of keep coming to me throughout the season. And it'll be kind of what I decide. So like, you know, like I wear my fearless Arctic bracelet and that goes back to 2017 when I wore the fearless tattoo on my wrist. Um, and so, yeah, we just kind of kept coming back to this, to, to the word belong. And a lot of that was just cause I was, Jerry was really starting to throw me into a lot of workouts with Carissa and Elise. And I was nervous about it. I was like, Oh my gosh, like, but they're running so fast. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And, and she would remind me, she's like, go into these workouts telling yourself you belong there. Um, and so we decided that that would be the word for the Olympics, because it was something that when I looked back in 2019, I didn't really embrace. I didn't really believe that I belonged in the front pack. Um, and so whenever I went to take the lead, you know, it was, you belong at the front, like you belong here now. And so, yeah, decided to do the temporary tattoo. It just felt fitting. Um, and it was really cool because I was telling, I roomed with Ellie Perrier at the Olympics and I was telling her about it. And she's like, that's so crazy. She was like, my college coach used to always tell me to remember I belonged. And he literally just texted me that. And so I was like, well, do you want one? And she's like, yeah, actually I would. So she wore one too, which was pretty cool. Oh, that's um, awesome. <laughs> that we like had that and um, that, that the word was so meaningful for both of us. So I'm like, well, I mean, I either have to get a belong bracelet now too, or, you know, I guess maybe get a tattoo. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask like, what would it take to make it permanent? But I guess if you're rotating through different words every couple of years, then that kind of keeps it fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really like 
um, how it changes as the season goes. And sometimes it cha like changes throughout the year too. So, but yeah, that one's definitely really meaningful right now. It's, it's been tempting to want to get it permanent, but the fearless is really meaningful too, since that was obviously my first one. So <laughs> do you have the rings tattooed on you? I do. Yeah. Oh, I have do. it on my ribs. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that's everyone, right. Everyone's like, everyone's like, are you going to add something like maybe <laughs> second team? Like you have a medal now. And I was like, I don't know. Like it's, it's tempting. Like I never thought of myself as a tattoo person, but what do they say? You get one and then mm -hmm. it doesn't stop after that. So, <laughs> so I'm curious to wrap up on a little bit of the, the Olympic race, the last K or so, are you just running on fear the entire time of like trying not to get caught and like knowing pretty much at that point, you just have to count to three. It's like one, it's like if one person goes by you, then you're at two and then like just staying within the medals. But you know, it's when we were watching Kyle, Dana and I um, out in Martha's vineyard and wa watching the races, there was a moment we freaked out thinking that you miscounted the laps <laughs> and like that this was just a big mistake and you, and you, you, yeah, that you had miscounted the laps and we're going to really have a slow last one, but you didn't, you just kept ratcheting it down. And so it was really awesome to watch, but what were those last like K 800 like for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the the scariest lap was the first one. Um, so that 1600 to 1200, because I, that was where I had to kind of commit to the, to the plan. And, you know, there's been times before like us champs a few years ago where I went to the front, but didn't fully commit. And I just sort of was there. And so it was like, I need to make a decisive move. And that's what really led to that third, that, 1200 to 800 lap being so fast um was that it was just I honestly had no idea how fast I was running which is it's funny that I think a lot of people yeah thought that I was like kicking too early like I miscounted because I think I'm normally viewed as this really cautious like calculated person and how that all played out was clearly not super calculated it was just like I'm going to be decisive and I'm going to make it really hard and I'm going to run the kick out of everyone's legs, including my own. <laughs> and so, um, but every lap I was still in the front, I just started to gain more confidence. And I think one thing that I, you know, with a K to go and 800 to go was that I really was not putting any focus on what was going on behind me. I was just trying to like, just pour it on and just leave it all out there and truly run to try to win. And, um, with about 600 to go, I, I really thought I was going to pull it off. I was still feeling pretty good. And I was like, I'm going to do this today. And um, thankfully, Jerry had, you know, warned me going into this race that he's like, you may go to the front, you may pull everyone along and people may go around you with 300 to go. But what you can't do is just assume it's over if someone comes around. Like, you have to keep thinking, you have to go with them because you don't really know how they're feeling. That might be their last move. And so... Yeah, 600 to go, I'm still feeling really good. And then I get to 300 to go. And all of a sudden, the wheels are coming off. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, just keep it together. You have 300 meters. And so I was like, just trying to envision. We've done so many 300-meter repeats at the end of workouts. So we're just trying to work on, you know, that last 300 of a race on tired legs. And so I'm just really trying to focus on not falling apart. Caruth comes around me. 
And I immediately just think, okay, like Jerry said, you have to match the move. You have to go with it. And so I think just like forcing myself to try to stay with her kept me going into that last 200. And, um, you know, that last water jump was super rough, but stayed on my feet. And it was just like, just get, like, if I can get over this last barrier, like, I know I'm going to pull this off. Um, so yeah, it was just purely focusing on like, and only what was in front of me, nothing that was going on behind me, like, obviously, Hyven and um, I'm blanking on her name. I can't remember her name. But they were coming in super fast. But it was like, only what's going on, like forward, like, don't waste any energy on what's on what's behind you. So it was, you know, no, there were no spectators and fans there. But you still found a way to find like the Team USA section took the flag and then did, you know, the lap around, I guess, was that moment, I guess, a little bit weird because there were no fans? It certainly was, especially just having like had that moment in London and it being such an incredible experience to interact with the entire stadium for, you know, the whole lap. Um, but there was a few people there that made it really special, you know, like Paul Mosier was the first person I saw and, um, that was really cool to be able to to celebrate with him and then the team USA staff and you know it was really cool Megan Watson who was the USA women's distance coach was actually the distance coach for the very first team I ever made world juniors back in 2012 so just a really cool for, full circle moment and then um the coaches like Jerry Shalane and Pascal and our PT Colleen were in the stadium and so I was able to see them and just kind of like take it all in with them. And Ellie was in there and just super excited. And um, so even though it was small, it was still really meaningful. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people that were really impactful in getting to that point. How far in advance did Jerry give you that plan? Because I'm trying to wonder if like what breakfast might have been like that morning at the <laughs> village. Like, is it something that you get the race plan and you keep it so close to just you? Um, or is there like the discussion at breakfast if like Elise and Carissa were there like, hey guys, you're not going to believe this. Here's what Jerry <laughs> wants me to do. <laughs> um, I definitely kept it to myself pretty like much, you know, um, just really trying to process it. And, you know, Shalane was at, like, Shalane and Pascal were obviously aware of it. And I woke up to a text from Shalane that morning and it was that she woke up with butterflies, just really excited about the day and that she just felt so confident that I was ready. And she was like, I know it can be really scary to do what, you know, you um, are about to do, but she's like, I feel so confident that you're going to walk away with zero regrets if you do this. Um, And that really stuck with me. I mean, she's, that she was at the top for so long. She has so much experience. And so to hear that from her and to hear how confident she was that, that I could execute a race plan like that, you know, I, I, I was like, you know what, I have to trust that. And I really need to um, believe that I can, that I'm ready for this. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so jealous that there's like a group of just like five people who know what you're going to do during that race. And then that their <laughs> vantage point and perspective of watching it unfold is totally different than, than everyone, everyone else else's. Is. Like, I'm sure that yeah. would have been like so thrilling to know like, Hey guys, ever like, I mean, if there was only a way, like if you would have posted, here's what I'm going to do on Instagram <laughs> a minute before the actual race, that would have been awesome. But you were um, like waiting for it. They're like, is she going to do it? Is she going to yeah. do it? <laughs> 
so how different, I mean, the race in, uh, at Pre was totally different because at this time, the American record was still nine flat from 2018 that you had run. So this time around, first K is 255, which is 10 seconds faster than the first K at the Olympics. And like we said, I think you went out in 66. So how different was this race? Was it just sort of like try and empty the tank as much as you can? Because it was pre definitely had like a weird feel to it as well, where it was like kind of like a victory lap for a lot of people. And then, but for others, it's sort of like you could tell that the emotional toll and just kind of like the physical toll of trying to peak at trials Olympics and now like at pre has gotten to some people and it's sort of like their tank is on empty. And for you, you managed to pull off in what was it, eight fifty seven? Uh, yeah, eight fifty seven seventy seven for a new American record. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> um, you know, like looking back at how the season had played out, I think I wasn't quite ready at the trials, which I think ended up playing into, you know, my advantage going into being able to race well at the Olympics and um, and pre Fontaine also and. You know, part of that, I think, is that I'm at a point where I feel confident that I can run 9-10 not peaking quite yet. And so, um, you know, not that I don't take trials and stuff super seriously because, like, nothing is ever guaranteed. But I think going into pre, the the emotional, like, side of things, and that was the harder thing to kind of, like, get back into um physically like with how I was feeling and how workouts were going I was like okay I know I'm in a good place it's just like mentally I need to like really take like get back into this zone because there was just such a desire really to you know yeah take a break and be done and celebrate what had happened it was like hey I just accomplished like the biggest goal in my career like I kind of want to be done and I think everyone was kind of like my husband was even saying he was like He's like, yeah, I knew you were in a really good place. He's like, but I couldn't tell if like mentally you were still in it or not. You were just a little all over the place, which was probably good. I think there's a balance between like completely refocusing, but, and like, but also taking time to kind of celebrate what happened. But, you know, between talking to the coaches and just realizing the opportunity that was there at pre, it was one that I really needed to take advantage of and just, just see what could happen. Cause you know, you had an incredible field and we'd all just run really well at the Olympics. So clearly people were fit. You were bringing in now Nora who had run the fastest time of the year. She was our, you know, she's a sub nine athlete um, and she's fresh and just, you know, this was going to be on American soil. That's a, you know, big difference between, you know, Monaco and, and free was I was going to get to run in front of American crowd. Mm -hmm. And so Shalane was like, I think she could tell I was a little bit nervous about, because I knew like the pace requested was a little faster than what I was hoping it would be. Um, And she was like, she was like, you know, you're ready for this. Take advantage. You don't know how many opportunities like this are going to come around. And I was like, you're right. I need to just go in with the same mindset that I had at the Olympic Games. And that's to leave it all out there and just to commit what to however the race plays out versus running safe. Because 
I don't like the way I feel after races that I've run safe because usually you leave questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that meant going out faster than ever I, I ever had, but I just like didn't let myself process how fast it was. It was, yeah, one of those like, you know, you can race with these women, you belong here and you're just going to stay in it. <laughs> Is nine flat sort of, because I guess for you acknowledging that the speed isn't quite there in your legs for two flat in the 800 or (laughs) four flat in the 1500 that for you this is the only round one that you kind of really can attack I guess 15 in the in the 5k Um, but that this is probably like this is your specialty event and I'm curious like with the mental side of things I'm sure so many people have probably talked about, especially on the, on the men's side, like trying to break four minutes for the mile, like can get really when you're that close and you're just point less than a second away that chipping off even little bits of time, get harder and harder. Like for me, it's five minutes for the mile, but we're not going to go there. Um, And so I guess, did you ever have any conversations with someone like Evan who has chased after, you know, his own barrier in what is it? Eight. Right. And, um, how close he's come to that. But this time around for you, is it, it's nine, nine flat. So I guess, how did you approach just like that flat aspect of getting under that time? Yeah. Um, I think it came back to letting go of the clock a little bit. <laughs> I think that that's the most interesting thing about some of these barriers and these time, like chasing these times is that the ones that you don't realize it's, necessarily happening or the ones you don't really process the clock or when it usually occurs um and I learned that back in uh, 2016 when I was chasing the NCAA record um obviously wasn't a a flat time but it was a uh, you know one that I felt like to walk away from that year that winning the NCAA title wasn't enough. Like I needed to really like establish myself as one of the best. And, you know, Joe Franklin saw me getting just really obsessive about these times. And he just left me with, you know, he's a a man of few words usually with his advice or conversations. And he was like, Courtney, focus on competing and winning races and the times will come. And so I really actually tried to take on that sort of mindset going into pre. I was like, if I compete and I compete to try to win, I really believe I'll get under nine minutes. Um, And so it really wasn't until about 400 meters to go that I like let myself fully process like where we were at with the clock. And that was whenever I I was like, okay, I think I need like a 73 or something. And I was like, I'm going to run, I'm going to run at a nine today. Like this is (laughs) happening. I can run a 73 right now. Um, But yeah, I think that, there's been many times and I've done it myself too, where you just, you get so caught up in feeling like it has to play out a certain way for a time to happen. And, um, letting go of that is actually what led to it happening. So, um, you know, and who knows, maybe one day, like, you know, getting comfortable going out in 255 will mean that there's even faster in there. Yeah. You've already (laughs) thrown, I think you've already thrown out what that, sub uh no it's like 850 I think is like the new mark that's kind of like in your head (laughs) yeah yeah I mean obviously that's like chances are that'll never happen I don't know you know it's how many there's only been one race that that's ever happened but I think that you know I have to keep 
pushing myself towards faster. And, um, you know, if you look at where the competition is at, you know, Beatrice at her best is capable of that. Nora just ran 8.53. So there are women that I'm currently competing against that are at that level that are running very, very fast. And it doesn't mean that every time I race them, those times are going to happen. But by believing that's possible and like just trying to push myself towards that, I think that's what it's going to take to contend to, to win some of these big races. Cause at this point, that's kind of what's missing from my career is I, I have one of the best resumes of second place finishes. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, you know, like to keep pushing myself to try to contend to win a diamond league or win a U.S. title, win, um, you know, world championship, you know, and who knows, it may never happen. But if I keep just pushing myself toward that, um, I think I'll walk away really happy with, with my career. And, um, but yeah, I think that we're capable of a lot more than, than we realize. And the event still also just, it's young, you know, it was only run in the Olympics starting in 2008. So it's pretty incredible how much it's progressed. Yeah. I was going to ask sort of a little bit of like that progression from even like, I guess, 2017. Cause I, you know, I was brought back to just seeing these fast times. Um, when I think Emma was asked about, you know, the world record, uh, being lowered down to 8:44, and she was like, "I do think a woman can run 8:45, but I don't think a woman can run 8:45 for a whole season when she runs nine minutes and then runs 8:45." So it's like I, I don't think that's actually possible. I think nine minutes is still the holy grail of women's steeplechase, and I think that's a time that's right under nine minutes. Athletes can run clean, so hopefully, there's enough of us to get near that. Have you seen that was that was three four years ago now? Like, do you one? I guess like is that something that you kind of suspend just for the moment? Just like how dirty sometimes you don't know, like, I guess sometimes what people do uh, when they're back at home and that kind of stuff. And so you just have to worry about competing against who's there on the line against you. If you just like, let that go, like suspend sort of like the skepticism behind some people. And then that would, I mean, that quote being from three years ago, it's still somewhat aligned to like what, us or just not even us world steeplechasing is like on the women's side right now yeah i mean i think that there's definitely still much more of a cluster around that nine minutes and i think that just shows you how hard it is um but i definitely lean towards yeah, the other side of just kind of letting go of the the skepticism and things like that and more just viewing it as um pushing me to believe there's greater out there because you just, you really don't ever know when the stars are going to align and people just really run to their full potential. Because, you know, I look at how Prefontaine played out and, you know, going 255, 305, 257, is that really me running as fast as I possibly could? I don't, I don't know. You know, like maybe if it was a little more even, we're talking even faster. So I just, I guess maybe I'm, you know, too much of a glass half full person, but <laughs> I just always want to believe that, believe in the good and that, you know, that if I'm looking to those times that have been run that are out there, it's going to, it's going to continue to push me um, mm-hmm. even further. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, I mean, yeah, I have a goal of trying to get as close to 850 as possible 
but I'm very realistic with the fact that it may never happen just because how many races even go that fast? Yeah. Cause there's definitely much more of a, a cluster around that nine minutes. And, but the more of us, I think that are running under nine minutes and you're seeing it happen a little bit more frequently and that there's more than just one person in the field that's doing it. I think that's what it's going to take to continue to push it the times lower and lower. And I think that you see that here in the U S happening across all events. And I think, you know, like the number of women that are breaking 15 in the 5k right now used to be, you know, what, maybe one, two a year. And now it's how many in the last year or two, like 10, 12, so many. And it's because we're looking at it and saying like, I can do that too, versus it being like, oh, well, they're just the one person that is capable of it. So I don't know, just try to (laughs) use it as inspiration versus Mm -hmm. assuming I can't do it. If it's not a human, do these lights actually like make much of a difference? Like, or did you notice them during the race? So I only like saw them at one point because we were actually pretty, we were actually ahead of them for a lot of the race. So I would be curious to know how it would feel if they were set at that like 8.55 mark because they didn't tell us what it was set at. And I think it was actually set at nine minutes, but the pacer was supposed to go 8.52 pace. So there was definitely like a gap between what was being what the race was being paced at and then what the lights were set at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm definitely curious. Yeah. How that's going to play how it would feel with the lights. If you were actually running with them, I do think in the steeple, it's a bit weird. Cause like you're not really looking down, like you're definitely looking <laughs> a lot more up. Um, but yeah, I do think that there's a lot of fact, like if we could get used to those, it could come into play to, to helping the race be paced a little bit more evenly. Like, you know, obviously the first lap's always going to be a little bit faster, just given the, you know, the flat 200, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't, I mean, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but I would assume like for myself going out in 66, 67, isn't exactly how I would <laughs> want to run, but you know, you learn how to handle those situations because you want to be able to put yourself in the race. Can we start a little beef? Is there, is the track at, uh, Hayward? Uh, faster or better than Monaco? <laughs> um, I think that the atmosphere for an American athlete is better at Hayward. <laughs> okay, that's that's a nice political answer that we'll yeah. take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, it was just really special to be able to do that on American soil. Like, not to take away from Monaco at all, because you want to get invited back. That's, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And Monaco is an incredible meet. Like, definitely one of my favorites of all time um but yeah to be able to to share that with so many american fans was really cool and i mean i think yeah i mean you just look at times across the board that were coming out of hayward it's it's clearly a really really nice facility and everyone's really excited about running fast there so what's that saying it's like always the bridesmaid but never the bride like is that the one that we have to shake off next year and you know i mean winning gold in the steeple chase in front of a crowd at Hayward would be pretty sweet as a way to yeah. snap that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that would be an absolute dream. So like I said, I mean, I have one of the best, yeah, probably resumes out there of second place finishes and um, I'm super proud of them. Like I think every time I've really put myself out there and, and I really view it as like, you know, I view myself as having one silver, not settling for, for silver. I, I went, I won that medal and I'm really proud of that, but Definitely want to keep pushing myself to try to to come out on top. And, um, you know, if 
I think I continue to try to put myself in it and contend like I'll walk away, um, you know, really happy with my career, no matter what the result is. All right, Courtney. Well, we did the final questions that I ask every guest last time <laughs> that you were on the podcast. Unless anything's changed, like has the funniest drug testing story changed for you like in the past like two years? Um, oh, gosh. I feel like I always like think of funny ones and then I forget them whenever I'm put on the spot. Oh, one. one all right. So one question, I guess, to close it out that I was kind of curious about, and you'd be someone really good to, what is the pressure sort of like in writing the caption for your first Instagram post after winning an Olympic medal? Because like, <laughs> you're the one that you posted about the tattoo, uh, the temporary tattoo and like the work that you've done on your mental game wasn't the first one that you posted immediately after. But like, you kind of like, it, you said you were at a loss for words and that's exactly how I would be yeah. right after doing that, that you kind of think like, I can't do, do I do a funny caption? Do I do just like a really heartfelt sentimental caption? So it's like, you probably had to sit and think on that one yeah. a little bit longer than, than, than you thought. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. It took me way too long. And it's one of those where you're almost like, I need to just go simple and like put out like a, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. Thank you all. <laughs> and get it out there. Cause like, I definitely was like starting to go down the path of being really mushy and like, you know, long, but it was like, okay, I'm going to save that one for a couple of days and I have a little more time to think about it and exactly what message I want to send. So, um, especially too, like, yeah, the, the simple, like, wow, thank you all. Like all this stuff, like kind of like takes over too for like not feeling too bad about taking a couple of days to reply to text messages and stuff. <laughs> Just put out like a massive thank you to cover it all. So and then was it weird to not have like a Courtney White photo like on hand like yeah. right after? <laughs> yeah, it was. I know normally she's like sending me the Dropbox like, here you go. So I'm like trying to search her pictures. I'm like, did anybody get any pictures from the metal stand? Because there was no, I mean, there was a bunch of cameras there, but nobody else. Like yeah. <laughs> we're just like posing there for the cameras and you're just like, <laughs> do I know any of you? So, <laughs> uh, Courtney, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. The Sidious Mac Podcast is a production of the Sidious Mac Podcast Network. It is produced and edited by Mike Zerzolo. Did you enjoy this episode enough to dish out a couple bucks? Support Sidious Mag by pledging any dollar amount over on patreon.com slash Mag to join our loyal legion of backers who keep this show going strong. If you're on your phone right now, you can also open up the Venmo app and hit us with a one-time donation to at Mag. We've also got merch over on SidiousMag.com. Any way you can show your support goes a long way. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Chris Chavez, wishing you some happy and healthy running. Legs are feeling good. See you next time.